The year was 986 AD. Barney Hurlson and his crew were being tossed about the Atlantic Ocean. It was a horrible trip. And the trip was made even worse when they had no maps and no compasses. He was an, an explorer, and they were doing some exploration that just got tanked. The storm was horrible. They, they, he finally decided, we're not going to go any further. We're going to turn this ship around, and we're going to get back to our home port of Greenland. Well, after several days of the storm just blowing them all over the place, the sun finally came out, the seas became calm. And when that happened, they could see the shore. But here's the thing, the shore wasn't the beautiful shores of Greenland, the mountains, the glaciers. In fact, all they saw were rolling hills and a bunch of trees. The crew begged Barney to drop anchor right there. They were 200 meters from shore. And he said, no, we're going to turn this ship around. They said, no, let's get on shore. Let's do some exploration. And then let's, let's re recover and recuperate. We'll find our way back to Greenland. He says, no, stop. We're turning this ship around right now. They finally made it back to Greenland, and he told this story to his best friend. And over several years, his best friend would take meticulous notes of whatever route it was that Barney had on his failed exploration trip. Well, in just a short time after that, that his best friend, his name's Leif Erikson, he would buy Barney's ship, hire his crew, and he would make it to North America. And he would be the first European to set foot on North America. It's an important story for us, and here's why. Barney got discouraged in the depths of his soul. When things got really tough, he made a bad decision, and he lost sight of his objective. He ended up failing the test, and he would be a laughingstock of Greenland for the rest of his life. Have you ever considered that we're going to go through multiple tests in our life? Tests that push against our faith, push against our character, and push against our, our patience? Yet, have you also considered that when we stay focused on the objective, and that objective is Jesus, that we can finally make it through those tests and our faith can grow and we can be strengthened? Well, such is what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Jesus is all about heart transformation. And heart transformation comes in three ways. Test, truth, and time. Test, truth, and time. Now, here's the thing. You may be saying, wait a second, Kip, are you that dull to where you can't come up with a new tagline? Because you used that tagline about four weeks ago when you preached here last. Well, for the three of you that remembered my teaching a few weeks ago, thank you, I love you. But for the rest of you, yeah, it is the same tagline, but I'm going to be focusing this time not on the truths that I, I focused on a few weeks ago. We're going to focus on tests. And as I said, we all need tests in our lives because tests make us focus on what's important. When we go through a test and we humble ourselves, it's as if God is speaking face to face to us. And tests help us get refocused on the objective. That objective has to be Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, but we are going through a test right now called COVID-19. So my, my hope and my prayer is that today you will receive something from God through the words he has given me. So let's go ahead. God's got a lot to say about that. Uh, let me set the scene for what's happening. Go back with me 2,000 plus years ago. Jesus dies, he's buried, and he's resurrected. And when he's resurrected, that's the most important thing when it comes to our faith. The resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. Go back 1,500 years prior, and then we, we hit the life of Moses. We're midstream in our summer series called Moses. It's in this series, and we're looking at, at, I don't know, 12 or 13 different stories of this great leader, all stories that point to Jesus. 
So 1,500 years before Jesus, the Israelites are wandering through the desert. Now remember this, all of our stories aren't in chronological order. So our story today is found in Numbers chapter 21. It's the fourth book of the Bible. And what we find out is that the Israelites have been wandering for 40 years. They're about ready to set foot into the promised land. Moses is an old, old man, and he's getting ready to die. His older brother, Aaron, is dead. His older sister, Miriam, is dead. And what's happened is God has taken them through a whole bunch of combat over the past several months because God is training them to set foot in the promised land because when they set foot in the promised land, they're going to be fighting. There's going to be battles because people aren't just going to say, hey, everybody, it's the Israelites. Come on in. So they're going to have to do a lot of fighting. They've been successful in battle. They have spanked some Canaanites all because of God. And as Warren Wiersbe would say, courage in battle must be followed by endurance in the race. And endurance is about staying focused on the objective, standing on God's truth over long periods of time. You guys ready to go? Numbers chapter 21, here we go. Numbers 21 verse four. They, the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, that's important. But the people grew impatient on the way. Underline that, they grew impatient on the way. Okay, quick backstory. If you go back about 700 years before this, there's a guy named Abraham. We're familiar with Abraham, the father of the faith. So Abraham has two kids, Ishmael and he has Isaac. Isaac then has two sons. Those two sons are Jacob, who would be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Esau. Esau would end up being the enemy of Israel. He'd lead a nation called the Edomite nation. And so we find the Israelites coming up through Edomite territory. They want to go directly through Edomite territory. It's a, it's a major thoroughfare. They call it the King's Highway. And Moses sends a note to the, uh, the Edomite leader and says, listen, we're going to take all of our people through your territory. We won't drink your water. We won't even get off your road. Please do this for us. And they say no. That would come back to bite them later, but that's for another story at another time. So the Israelites go off the beaten path. They go off the beaten path and they get discouraged. I love the way the New King James Version puts this in, in verse four. New King James Version says it this way. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor, okay, by the way of the Red Sea, got that, to go around the land of Edom. And then look at this. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. They were tired. They had to go through rough terrain instead of going straight up an easy path. Routes off the beaten path can be dangerous places, places in which our souls get discouraged. And folks, I think we're there right now. When it comes to COVID-19, this worldwide crisis, this worldwide crisis that is causing so many problems that is wreaking havoc, I get so tired of hearing it's a new normal. It's not. It's a new abnormal. There's nothing normal about it. And what I've found and what we've found as pastors is as we get to walk with so many of you, and I can speak for me specifically, we're all like simmering pots. We're, we're ready to boil to where if the slightest thing happens, that, that simmer goes to boil and we just spew out. We can have an attitude of apathy in which I don't care what I say or an absence of empathy. I don't care what they feel like. I'm just going to say what I want. We can be quick to speak and slow to listen. We can lash out. Folks, right now we're all 
on a route off the beaten path. And add to that for so many of you in a, broke, a time of brokenness, a loss of a job, a loss of your business, maybe a loss of a loved one, uncertainty, anxiety levels, depression levels through the roof, addiction relapses. And what happens is we can lose sight of the objective. We can get discouraged in our soul like the Israelites. And when we lose sight of the objective and that objective is Jesus, we can make bad decisions. So back to the Israelites. They're discouraged in their soul. Let's look at who their target is. Verse five. They spoke against God and against Moses. Gulp. Not a good idea. And said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. In the words of the incredible theologian, Taylor Swift. Let that sink in. Haters going to hate, hate, hate. And they can't shake it off. They can't. Look, look who they spoke against. They spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. In, in Hebrew, that phrase spoke against can be translated as complained against and complained about. That was their, their target. So let's start, start with target number one, God. God had done incredible things in their lives. He had delivered them from 400 years of slavery. He got them through the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his army came through the Red Sea. God destroyed the number one threat against the Israelites. He crushed them. He drowned them in the Red Sea. And then the Israelites complained. They wanted food. So God gave them manna. He gave them quail. I preached about that a few weeks ago. And he did that every day for 40 years, yet they complained. He protected them. He guided them with a cloud by day and fire by night. He gave them an incredible leader by the name of Moses. An incredible leader where God would speak to Moses. Moses would turn and speak to the people. You wouldn't need a bonehead pastor slash theologian wannabe saying, well, here's the, the Hebrew context of what Moses is really saying as he throws down the tablets and they're parting like Kafapalooza in 99. You don't, you don't have that at all. God speaks to Moses, Moses to the people. It's a miracle. Yet they complained. Moses is an incredible leader. He leads by example. and He consistently looks out for the people at his own risk. He intercedes for them. Intercede, it's a religious term that means he prays for the people. Yet haters going to hate, hate, hate. They showed their disdain by their habit to complain. And complaining, it's a habit. It is, it's a bad habit. Here's the thing. Their souls are discouraged and they start complaining. You know, I, in my, my 28 years in the military, I worked for some of the greatest leaders I've ever seen. Some of the greatest leaders I think this country's ever produced. And the thing I learned from them is great leaders are not great complainers. Great leaders are not great complainers. Complainers lose sight of the objective. Complainers, they speak from a discouraged soul. They focus on the problem rather than the solution. And then when you give a complainer a solution, they're going to find a problem with that solution. It's kind of like you're surrounded by a bunch of Eeyores all the time when you're surrounded by complainers. You know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? If I only had a tail. Okay, Eeyore, here's your tail. But it's a paper tail and it's flat. It looks stupid. They're always going to find problems. And last but not least, complainers divide. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, prayed for unity with his disciples, meaning unity in the church. Satan loves complainers because complainers do nothing but divide. Okay, so back to the Israelites. Chapter 21 of Numbers is the last time we see the Israelites complaining as a group, yet they complain. 
And what they do is they blaspheme God. They lie. They come out and say, there's no bread. There's no water. And that's a lie. God had provided that. And then they say, the stuff you've given us ain't good enough. And it ticks God off. So what God's going to do is God's going to take them to the woodshed. He's going to take them to the woodshed. They've been jacking up. He's given them warnings. Now he's going to deal with it. Hear my pastor's heart on this, okay, please. Hear my pastor's heart. Many of you right now are, are dealing with a habitual sin in your life. Maybe it's an addiction where you say it's no big thing. Maybe it's an anger issue, gossiping, lying. Uh, I don't know, gambling, porn. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe you're living a lifestyle that's outside of what God wants for you. And you're taking God's grace as a license to sin. At some point in your life, God is going to say, I'm taking you to the woodshed. You're going to have to live out the consequences for your actions, and guess what? It's going to be ugly. And he does that not because he doesn't love you or me. He actually disciplines us because he loves us. It shows his love. And so when he takes you to the woodshed, it means he loves you. Hebrews chapter 12 discusses that in great detail. It happened to me. 2009, retired from the military. Our first job was in Bend, Oregon. First job in civilian ministry was in Bend, Oregon. I was an associate pastor and youth pastor in a church. And I had a pride problem, a pride problem that God kept reminding me of. And I kept on saying, it's no big deal. I was working for a godly senior pastor, but I could not submit myself to his spiritual authority in my life. Hebrews 13 verse 17 tells us we're supposed to do that. And I couldn't do it. I thought I was smarter than him. I was better than him. So I resigned from the church. Linda and I moved up here. We had only been there one year. We moved up here. I thought I'd get a job in ministry because, hey, I'm Kip McCormick. I can do this. And God smacked me. He took me to the woodshed for 20 months. 20 months where God would work on my pride. And he's still working on it every day. But the lesson I learned was don't take his grace for a license to do whatever you want. Confess it, repent, and move forward and trust in him. You don't want to be in that place. But if you are, he does it because he loves you. So back to the Israelites. This is the 11th and last time that they would complain against God. And it's a sin. So he takes them to the woodshed. Now, in the, in the past, God would give Moses some form of warning of an upcoming schwacking or spanking, but he doesn't this time. It upset God so much. Look, look what happens, verse six. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes. Okay, stop right there. I hate snakes. Snakes freak me out. I'm born and raised in the Midwest. And for those of you out there who are born and raised in the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about with snakes because the snakes there are bad. You got rattlesnakes, copperheads, water moccasins, even the not so bad, you know, the, the ones that aren't venomous. They still look bad and ugly and creepy. I hate them. Even little garden snakes or garter snakes, hate them, loathe entirely. Thank you for being my counselors. Thank you for being my therapist. Back to the story. So then the Lord sent venomous snakes, ooh, among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Now, some of your translations may refer to the snakes as fiery serpents, and that's actually a better translation. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is seraph, seraph. It's where we get the word seraphim. And some of you may, uh, may realize that that comes from out of the book of Isaiah, where there are seraphim, these angelic beings that minister at the throne of God. But it's, it has double meaning. A seraph can also be a snake, a fiery serpent. And we're not talking Greek mythology like a snake on fire. It's fiery because it's what the venom does to you. The snake bites you. And then when it bites you, 
The venom get, goes through your body. Your body swells. Your body gets hot. You get a high fever. You, you get thirsty and you die a very, very painful death. Do not miss this. Don't miss this. What was happening to their bodies mirrored the conditions of their souls. What God is saying here is we all have poison in our souls and we have to have a way to be healed. So God sends these snakes to bite the people and thousands upon thousands of people die. Over the years, he'd been giving them warnings. Walk my ways, walk my ways. Don't do, don't do these stupid things. And they did some stupid things. So God schwacks them because he wants to get them focused, refocused on the objective. Look at verse seven. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. That's a big deal. Pray, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And look what Moses did. So Moses prayed for the people. Here's what I think is so cool. They complained against God and Moses. God takes them to the woodshed, but then they repent. They repent. Repent's a military term. It means to do an about face from the stupid thing you were doing. And what you do is you confess. You confess with your lips and with your heart. And you, that, that confession is, I want to change. And the people now are wanting to change. That's a huge deal in the lives of these people. They're now repenting. First John chapter one, verse nine says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It took a test of nasty snakes, ooh, to get them to be refocused on the, the objective. They own their sin and they go to Moses. Now in the past, Moses had immediately gone to God without the people asking him, but this time they actually ask Moses, hashtag respect. Moses had every right, every right to stand in front of him and, and hold a grudge to make a blacklist, but he didn't. You know, one of my favorite television shows is a show called The Blacklist. It's a story of a guy named Red Reddington. Uh, it's a great, great show. It jumped the shark a few years ago, but Red Reddington, he's a Naval Academy grad. He graduates from the Naval Academy, he goes in, becomes a Naval intelligence officer, then he becomes a spy, and then he goes rogue. And when he goes rogue, he becomes a gaujillionaire. He makes tons of money and, and, and he becomes the number one international criminal on the FBI's most wanted list. He's got some people who have betrayed him. So he makes a blacklist and he calls up the FBI and says, hey, I want full immunity. And for full immunity, full immunity, I will give you my blacklist and we'll go one by one through the blacklist. You guys are gonna, you're gonna capture these guys. You guys are gonna be heroes. But here's the deal. I wanna work with one special agent, one special agent only. Her name is Elizabeth Keene and little does she know that he is her long lost, what? Father, dun, dun, dun. Okay, the show jumps a shark like four years ago. I don't watch it anymore. But the point is, is he had a, a list of people who he had a grudge against. Moses could have done the same thing. He could have said, I'm tired of all y'all and given God a blacklist and said, you need to spank him, kerspankle him, turn him into dust, do something crazy with him, cause him to have even more pain. But he doesn't. He doesn't hold a grudge. And the reason why is because Moses is a great leader and great leaders don't hold grudges. Great leaders don't hold grudges. The people sinned against God and Moses. They repented. No grudge no blacklist. Folks, if you have a blacklist in your life, you've got darkness in your heart. When people betray us, when people hurt us, when organizations, churches 
betray us or hurt us. We can hold a grudge. And that becomes like that, that, that snake's venom in our, our system. It kills us. It chokes us. And what God tells us to do is we got to forgive. Even if that other person or that organization doesn't ask for forgiveness, we have to forgive. Peter would talk to Jesus and say, hey, so Jesus, if we got to forgive somebody, what do we do? It's seven times. And he's thinking, <laughs> Jesus is going to say, good job, Peter. Jesus comes back and says, no, man, it's not seven. It's 70 times seven. You got to consistently, consistently, unconditionally forgive. And the reason why is because Jesus understood this thing called betrayal. You don't make a blacklist. Sometimes you got to put a healthy boundary up between, between you and that person or maybe that organization that hurt you. But you consistently just say, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. We forgive in our time. God reconciles in his. So back to Moses. I wonder, I just wonder if this was a test for Moses. If God was testing Moses and thinking, is he going to hold a grudge? Well, Moses didn't hold a grudge, and nor should we. Tear up your blacklist. Look what Moses did. He prayed for the people. Let's keep on going. Verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Okay, God saw their sincerity and acted, but here's just what's theologically weird. God's saying, okay, make an image of something that's unclean, something that's going to kill you, and it's going to heal you. I mean, Leviticus chapter 11 talks about how the snake is unclean. And we know the story in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan comes and he disguised as a serpent, and he tempts Adam and Eve. And when they cave to that temptation, all evil breaks loose in the world. Evil such as viruses. Satan entices with spiritual venom that destroys the soul. But what God is saying here is you've got a sickness. You got venom that goes into your soul. You need a way to be healed. And the only way to do that is to nail it to a cross. I mean a pole, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse nine, verse nine. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked, underline that, looked at the bronze snake, guess what? He lived. Moses prays for their forgiveness. God provides a way. Now the snake didn't heal him. It's faith in God that healed him. I want to be clear about that. But if you look at the, at the bronze serpent, you're going to be healed. Notice what God didn't say. Memorize the Ten Commandments and you're going to be healed. Clean up your tent and look presentable. Trim your beard. Braid your armpit hair. Okay, that's weird. And you'll be healed. He didn't say that. He said simply, look and you'll be healed. And here's what's interesting. If you read the, entire, the rest of the story, because we're going to jump to John chapter 3 in a minute. But if you read the rest of the story, God never takes away the snakes. He never does, but he provides a way to be healed. And isn't that life? Isn't that life when we see so many bad things happening to good people? So many of you right now are going through something that you just did not deserve. But God doesn't walk away from you. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He says, I, I, let me heal you. Just look to me. Let me heal you. Man, I hate snakes. 
I hate snakes, but I love this story. And why? Because this story is our story. It's a story of salvation. Remember, the Old Testament is a progressive revelation of Jesus. This is a story that points to Jesus. So read Numbers 21, the rest of it on your own. It's a great story. What we're going to do now is we're going to fast forward 1,500 years. We're going to go to the time of Jesus. Jesus is early on in his ministry. We're going to look at John chapter 3. Let me set the scene for what's happening there. This is the Kipster International version that may have a little bit of embellishment. So it's the KIV, not a different type of Bible. So here we go. Let me set, set the scene for what's happening here. Jesus is early on in his earthly ministry. That would last three plus years. Three years and some change. In the middle of the night, a religious leader of the Jewish people, uh, this guy's powerful, his name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he is seeing Jesus do radical, incredible things. And he's going, there's something about this rabbi. He comes in the middle of the night, most likely because he didn't want the other Jewish leaders to see him. He could be, he could be uh, just chastised for this. He comes to Jesus and he basically says this, hey, Jesus, my name's Nicodemus. I see you doing rabbi stuff. I'm a rabbi stuff. Let's talk rabbi stuff. The stuff that you're doing is incredible. You have to be coming from God. And I think Nicodemus was expect expecting Jesus to go, Nick, dude, high five. So good to see you. Jesus doesn't do this. He looks Nicodemus in the eye and says, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus is like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Wait, what do you mean I got to be born again? I'm an old man. I can't go back in my mom's womb. So Jesus says, okay, Nick, dude, walk with me through this, okay? Um, you've got to be born again. Go back a few hundred years. A few hundred years ago, guess what happened? God's speaking to Ezekiel, and he says to Ezekiel, you need to be cleansed from your impurities by water and regenerated by the Spirit. That's what me being born again means. Oh, okay. You're still not getting it though. Okay, Nick, let me son of mansplain this to you. Go back with me 1,500 years. The Israelites are walking through where? Well, they're walking through the wilderness. Okay, good job. Who's their leader? Their leader is Moses. What do the people do? Well, they complain because they're hungry. So what does God do? He gives them manna. Yeah, he gives them manna and quail. And they live on that for 40 years. And then remember what they do? Oh yeah, they start complaining. And what does God do when they start complaining? He sends snakes after them. Oh, I hate snakes. And Jesus says, yeah, right, I do too. And then he says, remember what God told Moses to do. He said, put a big stake in the center of the camp and put that bronze, uh, bronze serpent on it. And when the people would look to it, what would happen? Well, they'd be healed. Hmm, you're close to entering the kingdom of God there, Mr. Nicodemus. Okay, let's go to God's word. John 3, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the bronze snake, so the son of man must be what? Lifted up. That everyone who believes in him, underline that, circle that, put stars around it, who believes in him may have eternal life. And then Jesus gives the most powerful, popular verse that sums up the gospel in less than 30 words. For God so loved the world, that's everybody, that he gave his one and only son, that's Jesus, that whoever underlined this believes in him. That means entrusts their lives to him, commits to him, not simply acknowledges him, but whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I would have loved to have seen the light bulb go off in Nick's mind. Bing, I get it. It makes sense to me. Remember, God's remedy in numbers. He said, simply look, just look and you'll be healed. And his remedy here is, is the same. Simply believe 
simply believe. It's about faith. It's about faith. Simply believe. Here's what he doesn't say. Memorize a a Bible verse every week and go through the Bible each year for the rest of your life, once a year each year, and and you're going to be saved. He doesn't say that. That's a good thing, but that doesn't save you. He doesn't say, stop cussing, stop drinking, get your life in order, then you're going to be saved. He doesn't say that. And that's a good thing to do. But that's not what saves you. He doesn't say, get baptized, join a church, and lead a ministry, and that's how you're going to get saved. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, look to my son, my son Jesus. Trust in him. Commit your life to him, and you will be saved. We all need Jesus. We all need a Savior. Romans 6 verse 23 says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means we've got the snake's venom in our souls. Hebrews 10 verse 27 says that we're going to face a fiery judgment. A fiery judgment. He's talking about hell. Hell is real. That without Jesus, you go to hell. And that's not a real popular thing to preach, but it's the truth. Jesus spoke more about hell than all of the Old Testament prophets combined. Jesus believed in it, and so should we, because when we we believe that hell is a real place, we can really take in our hearts what God did on the cross through Jesus for us, the pain Jesus went through. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 say that it's by grace we're saved through faith, not by a bunch of works so we can boast and say, look what I did to get into heaven. Those works show They show what our faith is about, but we're not saved by him. We're saved by Jesus going to the cross and dying for us. Yes, he says, believe. That means to entrust and commit. The demons believed in Jesus, but they didn't entrust and commit their lives to Jesus. So the bronze snake. Man, I'm looking at this whole story. You know, you got to go to that 30,000 foot level. And the bronze snake is theologically bizarre. It is. It's weird putting a serpent on a stick since the serpent represents uncleanliness and evil. But is it really that weird? Is it really that strange? I mean, fast forward to a letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul writes these words. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin. Underline that, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness, it means we're in a right standing with God. It means that now we can live right wisely. But the right wisely living isn't the thing that save us, saves us. It's simply believing in Jesus who became sin. He didn't become sinful. God needed a perfect sacrifice. That's Jesus, to pour out his wrath on. Because he's a, he's a God of justice. And he will make justice come about. And the first step is pouring out his wrath on Jesus so we could have a relationship with God, so we could get out of our jacked upness in life and start walking with Jesus, start walking with God to where when God sees, sees us, he doesn't see imperfection, he sees Jesus. Jesus took on the venom. He went to hell. He had to take on all of that so that we could be saved. And we simply look and we believe. But here's what's cool. I was thinking about this last week. Pastor Bob last week gave a great sermon, best sermon I've ever seen on the tabernacle. If you missed it, it all points to Jesus. You need to go back and see it. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. It's, I find it strange. No, I find it awesome. 
that God didn't say to Moses, get that big tall pole and yeah, you put it in the center of the camp and you put a bronze snake on it where everyone can see it. Guess what else was in the center of the camp? The tabernacle. He didn't say put the bronze snake in the tabernacle, look to the law to save you. No, he said, look and believe. And the same is with Jesus. We trust and we believe. It's as if God's saying, trust in what I'm doing. I gotcha. Just look to me. Don't take your eyes off of the objective or you're gonna go back from the land which you came. You're gonna be another Barney the Explorer. You're gonna be discouraged in your soul. Take comfort, focus on Jesus. Man, I love this story. One final part of it before I wrap up. So, Go back to the Israelites. Israelites are, you know, they, they have the snake thing. They deal with the snakes. They hate snakes. Egyptians and Israelites always hated snakes. Well, they have to deal with this snake thing. And then Moses dies. He passes the torch before he dies to Joshua. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Joshua dies. And then the Israelites are led by what are called judges for the next, I don't know, few hundred years. They're godly and ungodly men and women who God speaks to for them to get them refocused back on the objective. And then the last judge is a guy named Samuel. Uh, God tells him that he's got to anoint a king. The king is a king named Saul. Uh, I, I spoke about him when I talked about David and Goliath, I don't know, early part of the summer. King Saul, he, he reigns, he dies. King David, he reigns, he dies. David has a son, several sons. One of them is King Solomon. He reigns, he dies. And when Solomon dies, Israel splits into two kingdoms. The, the kingdom of Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Judah is where the root of Jesse is. Judah is the tribe from which Jesus would come from. And there are several jacked up kings for a long time in that time period. But then a good king comes along. His name is Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah takes over when he's 25 years old. This is 700 years now before Jesus. This is 700 years after the snake on the stick incident. And Hezekiah says, I'm tired of all y'all going after these idols. We're going we're gonna to tear down some idols. We're going to destroy some idols. And he's doing that. And he comes across a specific idol 700 years later. Look at this in 2 Kings chapter 18, second half of verse 4. He, King Hezekiah, broke into pieces the, whoa, whoa, look at this, the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. Say that with me, Nehushtan. Make sure you get the phlegm going, Nehushtan. It was the bronze snake on the stick. Over time, through difficult times, times off the beaten path, the Israelites took their focus off the objective and they put their focus on the bronze snake, which meant nothing. It was a little G God, but they loved it so much they gave it a name, Nehushtan. It's, in Hebrew, it sounds like, I don't know, snake, bronze, bronze unclean thing. That's not important. But like our man Barney the Explorer, they got off course. And as they got off course, they lost sight of the objective. And folks, we can do the same thing. Right now is such a difficult time. And we can put our hope in good things. Our hope in a vaccine, our hope in science. We can put our hope in people. We can put our hope in careers, our careers. God wired us to work. We can put our hope in our own finances. We can do stuff in our own strength. And while those things may be good things, God says, no, 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 in the end, they're just another nehushtan, just another bronze snake. 
And as I close today, I want to give you a challenge. And here's your challenge today. It's, it's a challenge for this week. The challenge is a question. What are you looking at to save you? What are you looking at to save you right now? Where are you going for hope? It's great that you're coming to a church online. Maybe you're meeting with a few friends. It's great that you might be listening to a pastor. It's great that you might have a loved one who's, who's cheering you on. But in the end, God wants us to stay focused on Jesus. That's where we get our hope. That's where we get our meaning. That's where we get our purpose. So Job, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Job. Job is probably one of the most well-known characters by non-religious people as well as religious people. You always hear the patience of Job because we know that Job went through so many difficult things. Uh, God has a, uh, ta- or Satan comes to God and says, hey, I want to I torture your servant Job. And God says, okay, you can do it because God's going to show for eternity that Job was a good man, but it's about God. And Job's going to go through difficult times and not know why. I love this story because it pertains to us. You see, Job's going through a horrible time. He loses all of his family, uh, except his wife who says, you need to curse God and die. He's, he's, he's sitting down by the fire, scraping his open sores with shards of pottery. He's in a lot of pain. And his friends come up and say, hey, you, you probably deserve this. What did you do to tick off God? And he listens to their really bad advice. And then he finally says, stop, stop. And in Job 19, verse 25, He says these very, very important words that even though they were said thousands upon thousands of years ago, they apply to us today. He says, I know my Redeemer lives and in the end, he will stand on the earth. Think about that. I know my Redeemer lives, but Kip, you don't understand. I lost my job. I know my Redeemer lives. You don't understand, I've lost my marriage. I know my Redeemer lives. Kip, come on, you don't get it, I'm an addict. And, I, and I, I've gone through relapse after relapse. I know my Redeemer lives. Kip, I got cancer, I know it's coming back. I know my Redeemer lives. Kip, you just don't get it. I, I, I'm so frustrated with people. I'm frustrated with the politics of the country. I'm frustrated with the church. I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. He'll bring beauty out of ashes, either on this side of eternity or the next. Where are you placing your hope right now? Folks, we are in a test, a very difficult test. And it's easy to lose sight of the objective because we're off the beaten path. And it's deep within our soul, that discouragement. And what God is calling on us to do right now is to get focused off our circumstances and put it right on Jesus because our Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the ends of the earth. If you believe that, say amen right now. Shout it out in the chat. I want to see those hearts going off in the chat. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, oh, we love you. We love you and we know that you live. And this is such a hard time. God, it's hard. So many of us are frustrated to the point that we're ready to just spew anything out. And right now, we just want to release it. We want to release it to you. If we've complained against you as a people, we repent of that. If we have complained against you, Jesus, for anything, we repent against that. We own it and we repent. And we simply ask that, Jesus, you meet us right where we are. We need hope. 
Hope can only come from you. Otherwise, it's a nehushtan. And we gotta destroy those nehushtans in our lives. We love you. And it's in Christ's name we all pray. Amen.